Today's scripture reading is Mark 10, 42 through 45. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful to be able to receive your word in truth and knowledge. And we ask now that the Holy Spirit would guide us in receiving that readily and impress it permanently upon our hearts, knowing that it is immutable and everlasting. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Thank you for making it a priority to be here today uh, as we gather with one another to praise our Lord and Savior for not only saving us, but even empowering us as we walk out our faith. So let's do as we uh, normally do here and recite uh, our memorization uh, that we're going through, Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. So let's, uh, let's say them together. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For what God has done with the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Amen. Turn in your Bibles to, uh, not Romans, but Mark chapter 10. And we've got a lot of text we're covering today. Um, so verse 32 through 45 and I'm sort of going to divide it into two parts here. And so uh, we'll begin with the first half of our, our text as Jesus is reminding the disciples of what is ahead, but, uh, is ahead of him as well as them. And so, but first, I, I want to remind us that, you know, at Heritage, we, we preach through the books of the Bible. We don't bounce around from topic to topic, you know, every Sunday. Although I do occasionally feel that uh, a topical sermon is is appropriate but I, I believe that a steady diet of that tends to 
cause us to miss a greater understanding, a deeper understanding of the scriptures. Especially if we, if we don't know the context, don't, don't know the backstory in a sense, don't see how things are unfolding as they happen. And when we kind of lose sight of the context, we, we tend to not appreciate or even wrestle with uh, the, the text because it's not a verse-by-verse study. And so, now here's the other truth, is, is a pastor can open up any scripture and preach from it, and it might be the only time, for instance, he's in the Gospel of Mark all year. But because it is scripture, it is still profitable because that is the Word of God. But the shortfall of having a steady diet of just topical sermons is that we miss out on the continuation of the passages and seeing how things are building up and as things are progressing along, especially when you're talking about the life of Christ here. So we, we miss that if we don't go verse by verse or chapter by chapter through the scriptures. And today we're reading about Jesus telling his disciples about his upcoming death. Now we've been going through the gospel of Mark verse by verse from the very beginning. And so when we talk about Jesus' death or the fact that Jesus is mentioning this in our text today, well, this is the third time he has brought this up. We saw it in verse in Mark 8, we saw it in Mark 9, and we see it again here in Mark 10. And so Jesus has already spoken like this to his disciples. So if we were to just start with Mark 10, we often would fail to realize, wow, this is the third time that Jesus has brought this up. But that's what going verse by verse allows us to do, to see things unfold. We've read this before. And so we have the context. We understand the deeper truths here as we intentionally progress verse by verse through Mark. So looking at our text today, this is the third time Jesus has brought up his upcoming death as well as his resurrection. And so our text today begins with Mark 10, uh, 32 through 34. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen, saying, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. It's the third time Jesus has covered something like this with his disciples. The first thing I want us to notice, though, are these fearful followers that we read about in these verses here. We see that it's, it tells us that, yes, people were following him, but they were afraid. I want us to notice how determined Jesus was to go to Jerusalem. Here's what Luke 9 says. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus was determined he was unwavering, purposed in what he was doing. He was going to Jerusalem. And there was a, a determination that, that our Lord had. And nothing, nothing was going to stop him from going to Jerusalem. The devil wasn't. The disciples weren't. The, the multitudes weren't. This is what he came to do. Now, based on the scriptures, it, it appears that the disciples see this in Jesus. His determination. It seems that although... Uh, it, it was on the mind of Christ to go to Jerusalem. He was determined to do that. For the disciples, they were able to see it as well. Whether it was, I don't know how they saw it. I don't know if it was in his countenance. I don't know if the way he was walking changed. His outward behavior, maybe things they were like, wow, he's really determined. Verse 32 says, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them. 
They were amazed and those who followed were afraid. There was something about the way Jesus was heading to Jerusalem and then him speaking about his death that both amazed and scared the disciples. It's like, I'm going to go there to be killed. Come on, let's go. Wait, what? That would be, that would be astonishing. And then when it starts to unfold, it would be scary. And that's where the disciples are. So I don't know if Jesus, again, was walking faster or what was different, but there was something different. He was going to Jerusalem. And he wasn't walking with them so much, like alongside. He was ahead of them, the scripture says. So there was this transition, it seems, in, in the Lord and the way he was focused on going to Jerusalem where he said, I'm going there to die. And so he's leading the way to Jerusalem. The disciples are, are following. It seems that, you know, again, he's not walking with them like in, a, like in a group. But he's ahead of them. And it amazed the disciples as well as scared them. They were afraid. But here's the thing. Even in their fear, what did they continue to do? They continued to follow him. Their commitment to Christ outweighed their fear. It's so encouraging to read that, you know, because we know this isn't always the case with the disciples. But at least at this point in their life, they were scared, but it did not stop them from following him. And so Jesus, again, he stops and he tells his disciples for the third time why they, not just Jesus, but why they all are going to Jerusalem. He doesn't say I, he says we. We are going up to Jerusalem. And this is what's going to happen. Now remember, as we read through the Gospels and we follow the Scriptures all the way up to Jesus' death, we know the disciples still did not get it. They still did not understand. Even though this is the third time that Jesus has told the disciples about his death, and every time he says something about his death, he always talks about his resurrection. But they don't seem to remember that part of it. So let's face it. When we don't understand something... We tend to fear it a little. And so that's where the disciples were. They see this determination by Jesus to go to Jerusalem. He's talking about his death. They're scared, but they still follow him, which I find it encouraging for us. They continue to follow Jesus, even when they didn't understand, even when they were afraid. And that can be hard to do because fear is a powerful thing. So although they were afraid, the disciples continued to remain and follow him. Wasn't always true of them, as we know when it comes to him actually being crucified. They all scattered, but at least at this time it was. And then after this discussion, now things shift gears just a little. We see two of Jesus' disciples, James and John, and they're wanting to have a great place in heaven. And so let's read the second half of our text for today. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or or at my left is not mine to grant, but is for those who has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they uh, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them uh, to him and said to them, 
You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The first thing I want us to see here in this second part is the request for greatness. These disciples, they were asking, listen, I want the best seats. James and John are petitioning Jesus for a special seat in heaven. Now, Matthew's account gives us a little bit more insight in this because it involves their mother. Mark leaves that out. So it seems that James and John, as well as their mother, approached Christ. We read about that in Matthew 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. has, Has this ever happened in your family? It has in ours, where... You know, like maybe more so a few years ago when we had more kids in the house, but when the older kids wanted something, but they thought it'd be a no, so they bribed the younger ones to come and ask. Won't, won't y'all go ask him? He'll not, he'll not say no to you. That kind of thing that's happened in our house usually doesn't work out well for the kids because been there, done that before. But um, but here's the thing: is James and John and Matthew says the mom's coming up as well, and Matthew speaks about. Her being the one to ask, Mark doesn't even bring her up. And so, not quite sure who was really behind the scenes. I feel like maybe it was uh, James and John and Mom, if you ask. <laughs> so, so, here's what happened. They come up, all three of them. But here's the thing. Once the question is asked, Jesus speaks to the sons. And so these two are asking for a special place in heaven, one on the left and one on the right. And they said, grant, you know, to us to sit uh, one at your right and one at your left in your glory. Now think about this isn't a request because of their great love for Jesus. This, This is about their greatness. This is about their status, which Jesus does address. And so, I mean, this could have been an innocent question, but we actually know what's unfolding here. Who would not want to sit next to Jesus in heaven? I mean, that should be the desire of every believer. I want to be as close to Jesus as I can be when I get to heaven. I mean, I'd be thrilled if one of my kids came up and said, Dad, someday when I die, I want to sit by Jesus forever in heaven. There's nothing wrong with that desire. See, the problem here is what was driving this desire for James and John. Because if you love the Lord and desire to serve him and to be with him, that is noble, that is wonderful. But if your desire is to to have a greater seat than your peers, to have recognition or prestige, well, that's far from a noble request. And this really backfired on these brothers. It's pretty obvious from based on verse 41, you know, the other disciples did not like this. The Bible says they were just really ticked off about this. I think they were jealous that they didn't ask Jesus before they did. There was a consensus here. They all wanted their greatness. But let's look at what Jesus wanted to make quite clear about your place in heaven. And that is that suffering would come before it. It would precede it. It is a great thing as well to suffer for the Lord. 
And this leads us to verse 38 where we see the greatness of suffering. Jesus said to him, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Can you do this, guys? You see, even before Jesus could return to glory, he had to suffer. And James and John apparently did not realize that suffering would have to come first. So Jesus says, uh, I'm, I'm about to go through a lot of suffering. I'm about to suffer. Are you willing to do that? They're like, yeah, we're willing to do that. You see, to suffer for Christ is a precious thing for the believer. To be counted worthy to suffer for his namesake. I'm not sure that was their perspective. I'm thinking they thought, yeah, that'll be worth it if we can get those seats. But here's what the Bible says in Acts 5. And when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They counted it worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. And every day in the temple from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. They, they counted, this is a great worthy thing to be suffering for the name of Jesus. And then Paul said, therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith and all your persecutions and afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven and in, well, with his mighty angels. We see a pattern here with how we are to view suffering in the name of Jesus. To be worthy, to be able to do that. It is a great thing to suffer, to be even persecuted for the name of the Lord. Many have gone before us, even before the apostles, experienced great suffering for the glory of God. But it appears all that the disciples, especially James and John here, seems like the only thing they could focus on was the glory part, the, the perceived greatness of where they would be seated in heaven. But without the suffering, without the suffering of the cross, without the death of Christ, there's no glory. None. And this is what they were missing. Christ still had to die. And it's true. I, I don't think we think of the rewards of heaven enough. We talked about that recently. But one thing you have to realize, the path to get there, there is suffering. We must be faithful to the death, even a suffering death, if that's what God allows for us. And Jesus wanted to make sure that James and John realized that without suffering or a willingness to suffer, there would be no glory, which is sort of an understanding of salvation. And we've addressed this before, that believers who, who when you are witnessing, when you have to, something you have to understand early on in salvation is, is that you're, you're surrendering your life, your entire life to Christ, to the point of death. Are you willing to die for Christ? That is the full surrender that we talk about when we speak of salvation. You're exchanging your life. You're giving it up. Now, there was a twist here that to what Jesus was saying. James and John did not realize that their seats in heaven were not up to Jesus. But they'd already agreed that they would go through the suffering. It just kind of blew up in their faces from their perspective. Oh yeah, we'll do that. Well, that'll happen to you, but you're still not getting this. That's not my decision. So whose decision was it? If, if Jesus didn't make this decision, well, it was from the authority of the Father. 
They said to him, we're able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. The baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. But where you sit, well, that is not mine to grant. So whose is it? He asked these brothers, are you willing to suffer? And they're like, yes, we're able. He says, okay, you'll get that part. But I can't promise you the other part because that's not up to me. So then who is getting that, who grants that position? Well, because Jesus said, it's, it's not mine to grant. Whose is it? Well, Matthew gives us a little bit more insight into this. Same story. You were drinking my cup and sit at my right hand and my left hand is not mine to grant. And then Matthew includes, it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. So God the Father is the one who has the authority in this area. So Jesus says, you're going to get the suffering which you said you're willing to have. But it's the Father that determines where you sit, not me. So they were quick to submit to future suffering. They were ready to receive the same baptism and suffering death of Jesus. And this commitment to Jesus and their willingness to submit to him, it shows their surrender to Christ. I will do it. But it does not guarantee that special seat other than what was already promised to them back in Matthew 19 as apostles. So it seems that Jesus is saying, before you talk about where, we're, where you're going to be sitting in heaven, let's, let's talk about your commitment to me, your surrendered life to me. Because without surrender, you don't get into heaven. You don't get to keep your life. You surrender it to Christ. Surrendering your life to Christ comes first. This includes us today, not just James and John. But what we have to understand, it's not up to the Son of God to assign those seats, but up to the Father. But here's the thing. Let's look at, we've already mentioned it already, but look at the desire of the other disciples. They were so upset, they became indignant at James and John. Now, this is so sad when you see what's unfolding here. Jesus had just told them about his, his suffering death, which was coming. And these disciples are preoccupied with their greatness in heaven. Jesus says, I'm about to go suffer and die and they're like um can we pick seats now in heaven He's like how inconsiderate how rude how sad that that was their focus and the disciples reaction the other 10 kind of proves they were all of the same mind here yeah we all want those front row seats all the disciples had this selfish desire they wanted to be first they wanted to be the greatest it all kind of comes to the surface at the worst time after Jesus said, this is what's going to happen to me. And they're like, well, can we get the best seat? That would be like a, a relative saying to you, listen, I'm about to die. And you go, hey, can I get this when you die? I'm like, wait a minute. That's, that's how inconsiderate it was what they were doing. So Jesus had some more explaining to do. Such a disheartening conversation that Jesus was having to have with these men. But it teaches us a valuable lesson here. Jesus explained something. Look at verse 42. Jesus called them to him and said to them. It, it, it's, like, it's like, listen, you guys aren't getting it. I just talked about my suffering death. You're wanting to know about who's, if you can get the great seats in heaven. So apart from the inconsideration and just moving past the fact that Jesus said he's about to die in a horrible death, Jesus brings the boys in and says, we've we got to talk about something. I want you to understand something. You guys aren't getting it when it comes to the greatness of those in heaven. And so verse 42, Jesus calls them to him and said to them, 
You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. So Jesus explains what greatness looks like in God's economy. Now something here I don't want you to misunderstand. It is not a bad thing to want to be great in God's kingdom. That's not a bad thing. We should all strive for eternal things, for heavenly treasure. We should all look forward to that. And so many believers today will pursue greatness in many things, and, and some of those things are noble even on this earth. I mean, I hope that all you parents want to be a great parent, that all you husbands want to be great husbands. hope you want to be a great employee or a great boss. There's nothing wrong with striving for greatness in that sense. Unless the motive is impure. We should strive for, to be great in those things that God has put before us. To be great stewards of our money. To be great in our generosity. To be great in our love for others. To be great in our pursuit of the kingdom. But this isn't about our personal greatness. And that's where the disciples, that's where they were stuck. This was about their greatness and where they would be sitting. Striving for greatness in heaven is, is not one of those things we talk about a lot. Seems the church discusses very little about it. And we've also failed to understand the upside down requirements when it comes to being great in the kingdom. Because there in verse 42... You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Jesus is like, this is how the world works. This is what he's saying. Let me show you how this is how the world works. This is what it looks like. This is how they operate. You can achieve worldly greatness through dominion and power and authority. You can do that. You can, you can become great in the world's eyes this way. This is how the world perceives greatness. This is how earthly kings operate. Jesus acknowledges that this is a, a world's operation. This is what it looks like. But then he says, but God's way is completely different. Because compared to the world, but it shall not be so among you. This is how the world looks at greatness. This is how they take over. This is how they run things. But this isn't how it's going to be with you guys. If you want to be great, you must be the servant. If you want to be first, you must be last. You must be the slave. This is how the world operates. This is how we in the kingdom of God operate. It's totally backwards. You can't miss this truth. Greatness in God's kingdom comes through humility and service, yielding your rights to others. It comes through ministry and unselfishness. It's the exact opposite of how the world operates. Greatness in God's economy is not measured by how many people are serving you, but instead how well you serve others. That is greatness in the kingdom. And what James and John and the rest of the disciples were trying to grasp at, this path of glory that Jesus was on was first going to go down a path of suffering and an unimaginable death that would lead to his glory. It did not make sense to them. Kings were not supposed to die in order to reign. But then again, Jesus was a king like no other. And Jesus is telling them, you must be willing to lay down your life. To be great, you must, be, you must minister. To be the chief, you must serve. Now, being a, a slave or a servant may have a negative connotation to us today. 
But here's the thing. When, when God speaks of it this way, it's a very beautiful, rich word. It means to be devoted to another, disregarding your own interest. This was the life of Christ. His life was devoted to the Father's will. He completely abandoned his own life in obedience to the Father. Nothing Jesus ever did was for selfish pleasure. Nothing. He lived a life of full surrender to everything the Father wanted. In John 8, it tells us, Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority. Think about that. Jesus, and all the power that came with Him, did nothing on His own authority. But speak just as the Father taught me. Nothing He did, nothing He said was of His own. It was all under the authority of the Father. Jesus, although God, Jesus still surrendered to the Father. And we likewise, we're called to be slaves to Christ. You're bought with a price. Your life's not your own. You are an ambassador for Christ. And if there's only one thing you get from the message today, understand this, the Christian life is not about you at all. It's not about you. Because complete surrender to Christ means you don't exist anymore. You're a dead man to self. You are dead to self, but alive in Christ. That is the Christian life. Christ lives in you, and I, I don't care what any so-called Christian bookstore may say, the Christian life is not about you. It's not about you. To fully surrender means you are to be a minister who serves others. It means you are a slave to Christ. And here's why you must understand this, because Jesus was our greatest example. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. See, Jesus, here's the thing. Jesus is not requiring something for us that he did not first do himself. In fact, all of our combined human efforts, we could never attain the, the greatness and the humility of Christ. Look, look at verse 45. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And then it says he gave his life as a ransom for many. I want you to understand something. Jesus says, I came to minister. I came to give up my life. I'm in full obedience to the Father. I do nothing on my own. It's all under His authority. This was the purpose of God in sending His Son. And we read about it in the life of Christ, His life of service. Jesus came to die. He came to save. And He did so by serving us. Never once did He do anything on His own. Never once did Jesus get up and go... Alright, i got a few things i got to do for the Father today, but after that i got some me time, and I'm just going to do what I want to do for the rest of the afternoon. Never once. Every second of Jesus' life, every minute, was in complete surrender to the will of the Father. And it's through Jesus' perfect example and his testimony that we see the greatness of God. The perfect servant is the glorious king. And the disciples could not wrap their minds around that. Wait, he's a king, but he's dying. He's perfect, but he serves us. I, it did not make sense. They were missing so much. Can you imagine leaving the, the glory and presence of the Father and coming to this sinful earth and walking among depraved, sinful man, selfish man, who were out to kill you? And then saying, well, this is how I'm expanding the kingdom. It's through my followers here on this earth. Through these sinners. That is so backwards. But notice the last phrase there in the verse. It says, to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, in war, if someone's captured from a, the enemy, there can be a ransom where they exchange, you know, prisoners. So both countries get their men back. Or, or maybe sometimes they can exchange money. 
as a ransom payment to get someone who's captive back. That's how a ransom works. Something is paid or exchanged for the life of another. But I want you to understand something. Jesus didn't pay the ransom. That's not what the scriptures say. He did not pay the ransom. He was the ransom. He was it. God paid the ransom through his son. His son was the ransom. His son was the payment. That's what atonement is. And for our Lord, it cost him his life. It cost him everything, even separation from the Father. He was the ransom. And to follow Christ, we too must be like him, in that we surrender and give up everything to follow him. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's not about church attendance. It's not about being nice. It's not about checking off a box that you, you know, read a couple of verses today. You're in full surrender every part of your life. I remember talking to someone over a decade ago. We were talking about their faith at work. And this professing believer said, I don't like to get my faith mixed in with my job. That's not full surrender. See, full surrender affects every part of your life. Every single part. Everything. That is full surrender. And if Christ in his perfection surrendered to the Father, how much more should we who are sinful in need of a Savior surrender fully to Christ in every single part of our life? That is what Christ calls us to do. To be a slave to him. To surrender our, Christ, surrender our life fully to Christ in every single area. Let's pray. Father, help us with this. This is, this is really easy to say from the pulpit. It is so hard to live out in our life, Lord. To surrender every single area. It's easy to give up a Sunday morning. Uh, it's easy at times to you know, write a check to the church or, or to do something nice for someone. There are times that you know, our Christian faith is, is really easy to live out. But Lord, I pray that you will help us understand that every single area of our life, our workplace, our home, our marriage, our finances, the way we raise our children, Lord, the things we do in our spare time, in our leisure, what we watch, what we listen to, Lord, every single area of our life is to be surrendered to you for your glory. Lord, help us to be followers. And may the Spirit of God continue to purge those things in our life, from our lives, Lord, that distract from that. Take us away from complete surrender. Lord, work in our hearts. Teach us through your Spirit. And may every day going forward, from this time on, may we walk closer closer and closer with you. May we live more surrendered, more surrendered, more surrendered to you in every area of our life. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.